Good morning, everyone. Um, my name is Katherine Heidelberger. Uh, I've been attending All Souls off and on for the past six years, but pretty faithfully for the last two years. Uh, really, really thrilled to be with you this morning talking about grace in pluralism. Um, and I'm especially grateful uh, for those of you who were already here, already heard the gospel in the sermon. Um, I feel really well set up today because um, we're going to be talking exactly about what the gospel is about today, um, and I take a lot of heart in Father Martin's words that peace works, and so um, this morning I just want to start by speaking that word of peace over all of us um, as we think about pluralism and our shared life together. So um, I'll explain these in a little bit, but you can hang out with them for now. <laughs> And I'd like to uh, oh, start with the caveat um, that I was trained to speak and teach by Presbyterians, so um, I use a manuscript. <laughs> um, so I'll be reading from this, but I obviously welcome conversation and questions, so interrupt me at any moment. I'll be keeping an eye out for you as I work through uh, what I have to share with you today. So I'd like to begin with a quote by Marilyn Robinson from her essay, Imagination and Community. We live on a little island of the articulable, which we tend to mistake for reality itself. Today we're dwelling somewhere between that little island and the rest of reality itself. In talk of grace and pluralism, we must learn to balance our own little island of Christian conviction with the ever-increasing reality of pluralism and diversity. I currently work as an ecumenical and interfaith campus minister at a highly religiously diverse Catholic university in the suburbs of Chicago. My work is teaching me that I am not privileged with bright and clear insight about the beliefs I hold most dear. And yet I have to thank you, all souls, because you have helped me hold these beliefs more dearly. Participating in the life of this church has become an indispensable part of my faith not only because ministry with college students is hard, but also because sharing our faith with one another gives me rest, gives me peace. I stumbled into my work as a campus minister shortly after leaving seminary with my Master of Divinity. I was tired and disenchanted, able to identify fragments of my vocation without any clear sense of what to do with myself. But I tell you this not to solicit pity. But I will say that my work has profoundly transformed my posture as a Christian, a minister, and a theologian. I have let go of many of the notions I once had of Christian life, but have found far richer treasures in its place. And working for a Catholic institution has given me a unique vantage point to wrestle with questions about pluralism and Christian witness. In some ways, Catholics have it easy. The first day on the job, I was handed Nostra Aetate and Ex Corde Ecclesiae, two church documents outlining the Catholic Church's official stance on interfaith relations. These documents portray a posture in Catholicism committed to interfaith work because of their Catholic identity, not in spite of it. So this made me wonder what resources, if any, we Protestant Anglicans have to construct a commitment to pluralism similarly. Living a life in spite is not sustainable. So today, our guiding questions will be, can I be committed to pluralism because of my Christian identity, not in spite of it? Can I be committed to the call to evangelism and dedicated to fostering a common life among religiously diverse others who may never share my religious home? My answer to these questions is an unwavering yes, 
And it is my hope that perhaps your answer can be yes as well. As we go along today, I'll be sharing with you how I came to say yes to pluralism as a Christian committed to living in a pluralistic society in a Christ-like way. In so doing, I'll be drawing from some figures who've been especially helpful to me in my journey, particularly Ibu Patel and Marilyn Robinson. And I also want to spend some time thinking theologically about pluralism as an Anglican, so I enlisted the help of Rowan Williams, too. But first, I want to talk about pluralism, and I'll start by saying what pluralism is not. Pluralism does not ask us to ignore or diminish difference. Pluralism does not require us to promote uniformity for the sake of unity, nor does it demand that we pretend like our differences are just illusions of the same oneness. Pluralism does not ask us to jettison our very real, very true convictions about the terms of faith. Pluralism is, however, a cultivation of diversity and difference in order to achieve mutually enriching goals. Ibu Patel, our Glen Ellen neighbor and the founder and president of Interfaith Youth Corps, the leading organization fostering interfaith cooperation in higher education, defines pluralism as the energetic engagement of diversity toward a positive end. Where diversity is a fact, pluralism is an achievement. I intentionally chose the word pluralism to introduce this talk over a word like diversity because of this definition. Diversity is simply a fact of the world around us, but that doesn't mean that citizens automatically know what to do with that diversity. More often than not, America's posture towards diversity has proved that others, particularly religious others, are viewed as a threat, not as a signal of any kind of achievement. We don't have to look far to see the devastating effects of America's intolerance toward religion, particularly given the rise of hate crimes directed toward our Muslim neighbors. Pluralism asks us to be devoted to three tasks, acquiring appreciative knowledge of other religious traditions, fostering mutually inspiring relationships across religious lines, and cultivating healthy attitudes of respect towards religious others. One of my students came up with an apt metaphor to describe religious pluralism. He used to think that religious diversity was all the same gift, different ways to wrap what's ultimately the same package. But now he thinks of different religions each as their own unique gift. Put in theological language, religious diversity, pluralism is a kind of grace. But before defining grace concretely, I'd like to spend some time with Marilyn Robinson. Last semester, when Matt kindly asked me to do this catechesis talk, I told him that Robinson had been a refuge to me in my work fostering pluralism. At the time, I was reading Ibu Patel, Patel's book on interfaith leadership, and the epigraph of that book is a quote by Robinson from her essay, Imagination and Community. And that quote is, democracy in its essence and genius is the imaginative love and identification with a community with which much of the time and in many ways one may be in profound disagreement. In this essay, Robinson begins with the virtues of reading, leading eventually to profound insights on democracy and community. Robinson provides us with a glimpse of what life looks like together in the midst of profound disagreement. When Robinson talks of imaginative love, she does so in the context of fiction writing. As a fiction writer, Robinson says, 
I continuously attempt to make inroads on the vast terrain of what cannot be said, or said by me at least. That is to say, the unnamed is overwhelmingly present and real for me. In the craft of creating fictitious characters, Robinson must seek to name the unnamed, to imagine a whole temporal reality of people she does not know and who do not exist. There's an ethical dimension to the craft of fiction writing here for her, for she goes on to say, the moment it, the unnamed, stops being a standard for what I do say is the moment my language goes slack and my imagination disengages itself. I would almost say it is the moment in which my language becomes false. Here is a striking claim. Imagination, pressing up against the borders of what is not known and not named, is an enactment of what is true. Put another way, our talk of others, the way we imagine and describe them, matters. And for Robinson, the act of imagination is the basis of community, which consists very largely, she says, of an imaginative love for people we do not know or whom we know very slightly. Here's where that quote that introduced my talk comes back into view. That little island of the articulable is our shared human life together, a remarkable project in the midst of the cosmos. Learning to imagine enables us to empathetically enact the truth of our communities, that we are remarkable human beings who are made for each other. What happens when an imaginative love in community is lacking? To answer this question, Robinson points us to our history. She poignantly observes, there is a notion with a brutal history that a homogenous country is more peaceful and stable, and in a very deep sense more satisfying than one with a complex and mingled population like ours. To an alarming extent, we have internalized this prejudice against ourselves. Robinson rightly believes that America is wrongly fearful of difference, that we have believed the lie that difference undermines stability and strength. We hurt ourselves and enact enormous and brutal hurt on others when we pretend that difference, not sameness, is the true threat to society. The supposed threat of difference leads Robinson back to community. When difference is taken as unstable, the definition of community hardens and contracts and becomes violently exclusive and defensive, she says. One doesn't have to look far in Christian history to see the violent exclusivity and defensiveness that has historically marked our witness. The obsession with the purity of a community ultimately leads to its destruction. The solution for Robinson is imagination. Imagination lends itself to fostering healthier and more humane communities, precisely because instead of narrowing and constricting boundaries, it asks us to identify with our different neighbors, empathetically imagining and recognizing that even in difference, we are all on that little island of the articulable. But instead of imaginative love, we are far more prone to react with cynicism, bemoaning that the United States is in a spiritual freefall. Robinson observes here that those who make such accusations, quote, never include themselves, their friends, those with whom they agree. They have drawn a bright line between an us and a them. Those on the other side of that line are assumed to be unworthy of respect or hearing, and are in fact to be regarded as a huge problem to the us who presume to judge them. This bright line for Robinson denotes the end of community and the beginning of tribalism a prescient observation for these times. I want to think theologically about the line of us and them for a minute. 
In the quote I just read, Robinson makes her own kind of theological claim when she talks about those on the other side of the line as being judged unworthy of respect or hearing. This resonates with her deep conviction of the sacred dignity of the human person, a conviction which I share. But I also think we should consider theologically what it means to exclude ourselves from the judgment line. As Christians, we claim to know the way, the truth, and the life to be the person and work of Jesus Christ, the second person of the triune God, a true claim, which I believe. <laughs> but I hope that our confidence in this truth never leads us to assume that we are above judgment and correction. It is an easy task to point out all the flaws and deficiencies of our religious neighbors, but we have Christians have a lifetime of flaws and deficiencies to work through ourselves. This isn't to say that we can't enter into meaningful dialogue about the things we do not understand about other traditions, or that we stop believing the truth of our Christian identity. But I do hope it helps us reconfigure where we draw that line. The life of faith for Christians doesn't distinguish between us and them but is rather drawn solely for us, marking the boundary between generous imagination and constricting exclusivity. I want to illustrate this point with a short story. One of my tasks at my work is to facilitate Catholic-Muslim dialogue with my students. In these dialogues, our students are held to a high standard of empathetic listening and respectful engagement, but they aren't afraid to delve into some of the most difficult conversations about their faiths. After one of our dialogues, a Muslim student stood up to leave and said, our dialogue encounters make me so excited to walk downstairs to pray. I leave here with a renewed dedication to my prayer. Now it's tempting here to draw the line between Christian prayer and Muslim prayer. But instead, the student's words were convicting, requiring that instead I draw the line in my own practice of prayer. I almost never leave those dialogues excited to pray. Instead, I hurry off to my next meeting or task for the day, never pausing to reflect on the dialogue's impact in my own life. So even though she left that dialogue to cultivate a habit that looks much different than my own habit of prayer, she helped me nurture my faith in a particular way. In the end, she invited me to cross my boundary line toward a richer, more imaginative life of faith. And again, this isn't to erase differences in habit or to diminish the reality that we belong to different religious homes, each with their own particular understanding of the ends of us and them. On the contrary, remember that pluralism presses into difference, accepting the full implications of diversity. Here, I'll briefly introduce a concept I learned um, in a scathing review written by Alan Levinovitz in the LA Review of Books on the Benedict Option, of all places. This concept is spiritual regret, a virtue coined by Stanford religion scholar Ye Lee Yearly. I'll let you discover for yourself how Levinovitz connects spiritual regret to Rod Dreher. But spiritual regret is the recognition that some forms of human flourishing are profoundly valuable, but can never be ours. Levinovitz's comments on the virtue are well said. He says, spiritual regret forces us to confront the humbling implications of pluralism, while protecting against idolatrous blindness to religious goods that we cannot possess ourselves. Spiritual regret gives us a way to honor the real expressions of faith of our neighbors without asking us to pretend that those expressions must be or ever could be ours. This is a virtue worth cultivating. 
Instead of drawing lines and excluding those who practice differently from us, spiritual regret enables us to recognize religious goods as good, while also keeping us from turning a blind eye to the reality that all goods are not alike, not in terms of value, but most certainly in terms of our ability to cultivate them in ways that are true to our own convictions. Put another way, pluralism as a cultivation of spiritual regret is grace. My student gave me a precious gift when she excitedly hurried downstairs to pull out her prayer mat after our dialogue, even though I'll never walk downstairs to pull out a prayer mat and pray alongside her in that same kind of way. Grace on this view is precisely this, receiving the unasked for, unexpected, and yet still cultivating faithfulness. Perhaps you're unsatisfied so far with my offering of pluralism and spiritual regret. So far, I have spoken of pluralism as necessary for a flourishing community, integral to our ability to truthfully and faithfully cultivate imaginative love with those whom we may never fully know. But what about evangelism, you ask? What about the call to go out into all the world, proclaiming the truth of the triune God? Our question still lingers. Can we be committed to evangelism and be committed to pluralism? We're going to try to work through an answer to these questions in this next portion where I'm going to be talking about Grace and Rowan Williams and a host of other things. But before we get there, I want to pause. Any questions? Any comments? Yeah? I'm struck in your story. Uh, the, the source of your inspiration is also a sort of same between the two of you, yeah. right? Your, devout, your devotion, yeah. right? I mean, it, so I'm not arguing yeah. that it's not about pluralism, mm -hmm. but, but it, it seemed to me like your inspiration is coming from a position of, of you know, similarity. Sure, yeah. More than difference. You're inspired to think about your own, you know, experience of prayer. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. in relation to that experience in a way because of your common devotion. Yeah, for sure. And that's definitely an element of this. What I am thinking about the difference, though, is my student's going to walk downstairs, pull out a prayer mat, and, and pray to a vision of God that looks very different than my own. Um, even though I affirm that she and I are people of the book. You know, she's, she is my sister in a way. Um, and yet our conception of who God is looks different. My God is triune, her God is one. Um, even if we're pulling from similar resources, even if we're enacting similar means, there's this difference. And that's what felt to me like spiritual regret, I think, in that encounter. Yeah, thank you. Any other questions before I... Sure thing. I know. Yeah, that's why we paused for a second. Sure. So I'll read this definition for you again. Spiritual regret is the recognition that some forms of human flourishing are profoundly valuable but can never be ours. So it's a way to look at the goods and the faithful practices of other religious traditions without asking that you do it, um, that you embody it, that you recognize that, oh, that's really valuable and really beautiful and really powerful, but that won't be, that won't be me. I mean, maybe it will. Maybe we'll have some kind of conversion experience. Maybe one day I will walk down with my student and pull out a prayer mat. I don't know, but I don't think I will. You know, like I, I don't think that's um, the way for me to be faithful to my Christian identity. That's beautifully counterintuitive. Yeah, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I wrestle with this all the time. I'm, I'm alert and I'm in politics. And I'm, and I'm watching how the 
Yeah, that's a really excellent question. Um, and again, it's something that I, I, I'm wrestling with, right? Like, in this question, it's like, yes, I recognize. Yeah, right, we'll get there. Yeah, um, so I'll go through. I mean, if there are any other questions, um, we'll get to them. But I, hopefully, maybe this next part will help get to that question of truth. Um, uh, but I will just say preliminarily, um, like that I think those truth that those questions of truth are very felt, and yet um, they haven't negated my students, me engaging each other very honestly. But I will say also preliminarily that me sharing the the truth of my Christian identity so far um, has made my uh, non-Christian students more faithful to their own traditions and not to my own. And them sharing the truth of their traditions with me has made me more faithful to my Christian identity. It hasn't converted me over to theirs. I don't know what to do with that. Um, but it's something that I, I wrestle with. Like interfaith encounter has, has we go back home more faithful um, as opposed to like looking more like each other, hopping over to another side. Um, so yeah. Right. Yeah, I think that's an excellent question. I think maybe it would be helpful at this point to go to part two. Um, and we'll see if these questions are answered. If not, we'll keep talking about it, right? Um, I hopefully we'll leave enough time to continue the dialogue after. But we'll dive into Anglican pluralism and evangelism and witness now. How about that? In 2008, Rowan Williams wrote a report for the Anglican Communion Network for Interfaith Concerns titled Generous Love. The Truth of the Gospel and the Call to Dialogue, an Anglican Theology of Interfaith Relations. Casual. In it, Williams establishes a distinctly Anglican, Trinitarian approach to pluralism, advocating for the generous love and care for all, rooted in God's own triune love toward us. And I just want to pause here and say that Williams' approach will be immensely helpful to us Anglicans, but I would be very wary to impose this approach on others. It can be all too tempting to be looking for a simple, one-stop answer to the question of pluralism as it relates to particular religious identity. 
But part of loving our neighbors, imagining and identifying in community with them, is to acknowledge the particularity of our own resources and answers. We need to take seriously the approaches of our neighbors and not expect that our answer will satisfy everyone. Needless to, stay, to say, finding a distinctly Anglican approach to pluralism is necessary in our endeavor to find grace in it all. So what is this Trinitarian approach? For Williams, the reality of God the Father acknowledges an Anglican approach which, quote, dismisses nothing as outside God's concern, but attends to the world in its manifold difference in the ex expectation that it ultimately coheres, having one source and one goal in God. Understanding God as creative, loving Father, whose expansive concern reaches all, frees us to generously and graciously engage our neighbors. We do so in full confidence that God is wide enough and kind enough to reach everyone. Williams here reminds me of Calvin on the doctrine of providence. It's not about determining who's in and who's out. Providence is about, God's, is about, about trusting God's care and concern for us, not worrying about what God will do to us or them, for that matter. Moving from father to son, Williams has a robust incarnational logic in his theology of interfaith relations. He emphasizes the body language of the presence of Christ in this world. Ultimately, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection instills for us a pattern of gracious and generous discipleship oriented toward our neighbors as we share with them Christ-like friendship marked by forgiveness, healing, and new life. But more pressingly, Christ's humanity demands that we attend to our fellow neighbors' whole selves. Williams poignantly observes, and I quote here, As we worship one who was rich, but for our sake became poor, emptying himself to take the form of a slave, we remember that Jesus is present not only in the ministry and sacraments of his church, but also in the persons of the poor, the hungry, and the oppressed. Our presence among them must be one of service, advocacy, and empowerment, whatever their faith. Here, Williams rightly reminds us that Christian witness must be concerned with far more than simply filling pews. The ministry of the church, first and foremost, is to be centered on human encounter and presence as we advocate for and empower all so that the hungry may be filled and the lowly exalted. This heavily social-oriented understanding of Christian witness is bolstered by William's robust Anglican commitment to the Holy Spirit. The Spirit not only provides believers with an animating, sanctifying power within, but the Spirit also provides the operative conditions for flourishing social life. For Williams, this understanding of the Spirit is distinctly Anglican. As he tells us, Anglicans refuse to prioritize either inner conscience or external authority alone in the quest for human flourishing. Rather, Anglicans have been determined to minister to whole communities, to find ways of enabling people of robustly differing convictions to live together so that a public good may be formed. In his footnote on this point, Williams mentions the via media Anglicans sought by trying to avoid both libertarian Protestant nonconformism and authoritarian Roman Catholicism. So, to be Anglican is to be committed to a Holy Spirit-driven outworking of pluralism, seeking the common good among our neighbors. Notice in the earlier quote about finding Jesus among the poor, the hungry, and the oppressed, Williams does not jettison church ministry completely. Instead, he again seeks a via media, encouraging us to seek the presence of Christ in the sacraments and among our neighbors. We need both to be true Christ followers. Christ-likeness is found both in personal piety 
and communal justice. So much for Anglican grounds for pluralism. Here I'm going to be settling the rest of my reflections on grace, and this is where the images that are on screen are going to come into sharper focus. Grace in pluralism, I want to say, is experienced when Christians learn to be guests, receiving the hospitality and grace of our religious neighbors. Williams ends his essay by reflecting on mission. I'll confess that I've had a strong distaste for mission language ever since beginning my work as an interfaith minister. I dislike it because far too often ideas of mission fail to take seriously those to whom the mission is directed. I fear that mission can flatten our neighbors, turning them into a canvas upon which to paint our own expressions of faith instead of recognizing them as unique and complex individuals with their own robust commitments and beliefs. But William's reconfiguring of mission has left me a lot more open to the idea. Mission for Williams is both embassy and hospitality, a going out and a welcoming in. These two poles of mission are indivisible and mutually complementary. Mission begins when the disciple enters a home as a guest. He says, as disciples, we have to learn to be guests, and the proclamation we make in our embassy is in the first place a blessing of peace. As ambassadors of Christ, our mission is to meet, to greet, and to acknowledge our dependence on other people and on God. The disciple is not an independent, impermeable entity blessed with all saving grace and insight. Nor is the disciple's message a one-way transaction or conversion. Instead, perhaps it is the disciple who really needs conversion. As Christians who have enjoyed the vestiges and privileges of Christendom for centuries, we have forgotten that we are guests. We assume that those meeting us are meeting Christ when they may be. But in reality, it is we who are encountering Christ anew in our neighbors. Think of Matthew 25, whatever you did to the least of these, you did to me. We are the ones who must ask for peace, who must seek the good and reconciliation of our neighbors. And as Anglicans, central to our expression of faith, according to Williams, is a meal for those who know themselves to be strangers and pilgrims upon earth. Receiving communion regularly should be a continual reminder that we are guests of the Father, anticipating the completion of God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. We are guests of the Father. The dynamic of receiving and welcoming Christ in our neighbors is a central theme of our gospel. We enact this central theme every time we offer hospitality, which Williams defines as offering our convictions to others in practical ways. Williams teaches us, even in the moments when we have the upper hand as host, we are re-evangelized through a gracious encounter with other people. The dividing lines are continually reconfigured for us in mission. I am drawn to Williams' reconfiguration of mission as embassy and hospitality because I think it offers us a more robust, dignifying posture to adopt toward our neighbors. It gives them the respect as full human beings who have the potential to have just as much impact on our own lives as we seek to have upon theirs. We are in need of salvation just as much as the next person. We are in continuous need of grace, and our neighbors are ready and waiting to offer us that grace. On the screen are two images painted by my friend, Kelly Cruz. 
These were painted last summer as part of a collaboration Kelly and I did, meditating on Mary's Magnificat. The work was commissioned for a monastery of Benedictine sisters in St. Paul, and it's now hanging at the Basilica of St. Mary in Minneapolis. Kelly created a set of 18 paintings, one for each line of the Magnificat, and then I wrote a set of 18 prayers to accompany each painting. The two paintings that you see here are for the lines, he has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. I wanted these paintings to visually guide our time together because they beautifully capture this giving and receiving dynamic that is central not only to our Anglican identity, but more broadly, our Christian identity. The prayer I wrote to accompany the verse about God filling the hungry was a Eucharistic prayer, inviting us to the table Mary presides over as she gives us the life-giving bread of her son. The prayer I wrote for the verse about God sending the rich away empty I wrote in reflection on the passage of scripture where Jesus asks the rich young ruler to sell all he has to follow Jesus. I wondered if there was any way to conceive of emptiness as a blessing, an invitation, not a curse or a punishment. Could God be inviting us to empty ourselves, renouncing all we have, so that we could be filled with something far more abundant? This is what I see in these paintings. And I see in these paintings William's talk of embassy and hospitality. In my experience, God's grace has come slow, disruptive even, barging in on the things I hold most dear so that I can be emptied and ready to receive again. But God always invites me back, welcoming me to God's abundant table. As I go throughout my life, I am more and more convinced that the grace I receive through my participation in the body of Christ week after week is meant to be emptied, given away, and continually reconfigured in encounter with my neighbors. Grace is only grace if it is given and received without expectation of return. But we're always filled again anyway. Christ readily welcomes us as we find him at the table and in our neighbors. Finding grace in pluralism has meant for me learning to be a guest, emptying myself to receive the good things my neighbors have to teach me. Receiving grace in pluralism has allowed me to cherish more deeply my Christian conviction in tandem with my commitment to advocate for the inclusion and equality of all, to foster a common life together. Sharing grace in pluralism means trusting in the rhyme and reason of God's providence, that God is ever expanding and faithful to God's creation. So that's where I leave us. We have time to follow up. Oh, it's okay. But um, thank you. Yeah. So, what questions are lingering with us still? Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah.
Thank you. Yeah, thank you. I received that. Um, and, and I just want to say, too, that um, it can be tempting to think of pluralism the way maybe I've presented it, as like all rainbows and butterflies and it's just like uplifting like how great it is that we're all neighbors. But like the reality is that we don't do that. And so me, you know, by honing in on this point that like being with your neighbors, learning from them, learning to be a guest with them is not our MO. You know, it's not our, our first instinct. And so to dwell in that, to sit in that, I think is like what I've, I'm trying to drive home because we don't do that naturally. Um, yeah, okay. You, we'll go back and then we'll get to you. Yes. Um, I guess I That's an excellent question. Um, and I will just say very briefly that Rowan Williams talks about our kind of Jewish ancestry, if you will. Uh, that's maybe the kind word for it. Um, and, and encourage us, exhorts us to uh, fight our supersessionist tendencies, to recognize that um, Judaism is its own very valid expression of, um, of faith and religion. And to be faithful Christians, we must be faithful to our Jewish neighbors. Um, and so he, he has a really excellent call to like study Judaism, learn Judaism, um, because it's where you come from, and yet you can't co-opt it completely. Um, so that's just like my note on supersessionism. But to get to your question, um, I think when I'm talking about like participating in the life of the church, right? Like this has become very important for me. Um, worshiping with you all every week, um, like I, I say, we say like very exclusive things, right? Like we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. Like we're making these claims that are true, um, and I believe those in my gut. Um, and yet, I'm never going to walk up to a neighbor and be like bang them over the head with an icing creed right like um if anything will i share with my students all the time what i think about um who god is and, and different things like that but like i said it so far it's made them better muslims and hindus and jews not better christians um so i think that's just a reality of pluralism that that faith is that we see through a mirror dimly like we can see but it's dim um and so we're still trying to figure out and maybe our faith is a step along the way to an ever-expanding ever new surprising reality of who god is 
Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. This is inter this is interfaith pluralism. This is a very mm -hmm. restricted kind of pluralism. Yeah, yeah, for sure. This is like pluralism within the devout. Mm -hmm. Your I think your your Muslim and your and your Buddhist you know students you're all affirming each other. I still think there's an other mm. that you're pushing against, mm. which is a sort of militant godlessness. Sure. That doesn't seem to fall within this yeah. purview. Yeah, and you know, and I respect what you're saying, sure, it comes from an interfaith sure, right, yes, yep, right, I'm an interfaith minister, yeah. I fully own that, um, I have yet to meet a militant godless atheist, um, I, I know atheists, I work with humanists and agnostics all the time, um, and they're actually very invested in interfaith conversations, um, the organization that I partner really closely with, Interfaith Youth Corps, um, they, like, the language is faith and non-faith traditions, so, like, humanists, agnostics, atheists, Muslims, Buddhists, they're all in the conversation. And so, like, maybe there, there are, I mean, I know, like, militant, godless, whoever, maybe. Maybe militant isn't even the right word. Yeah. Apathetic. Sure, like right. Apathetic yeah. Um, and yet, I've found that even my, my least religious students show up, and they want to talk. They want to talk about conversations that matter, about what it means to be human. Um, and I find that really encouraging. Even if they never find a religious home, there's something about it that keeps them invested. So, yeah. Hi. As we go out the doors this morning, what are some simple, practical ways that we can practice hospitality as hosts and as guests to our Muslim neighbors? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. I would just say, listen to Father Martin's sermon, but go in peace, like let, the, this piece like a river, like hop on in a raft and like flow down it. Um, you know, I, I think um, with pluralism, like when I often mention my job title to people, it's like, like you just clench up and you get really defensive and it, like people like have this very visceral reaction to all things interfaith. And so practical step, take a deep breath, like loosen up, um, recognize that like your Muslim neighbor, your Buddhist neighbor, um, I don't know, likes, uh, French fries just like you do. You know, like they're, they're just as human as you are. Um, probably stress about homework like you stress about homework. Um, so I don't know. I think a lot of what I've learned in my work is just relax. Um, we're, we're more on the same page than we think we are. Um, and just be willing to like be friends. Like yesterday I was leading an interfaith retreat and half of it was like, it was all guys that came on this. Um, and like half of my conversation with them was talking about video games. So, you know, like not really chatting about the terms of faith um, and yet talking, having a shared life together. So, yeah. I think that's a really helpful distinction for us. Thank you. Yeah. Um, as a student at Wheaton College, where I'm like pretty immersed in Christian culture, yeah. like, do you think it's important to seek out 
I love that. Um, also, excellent question. Um, my instinct is, yes, we do have an obligation to seek out these relationships because it is simply the reality of the world around us. Like, Wheaton is a bubble in a great way, but it's a bubble, you know? Like, um, and it's one of the probably only times in your life that you will ever be only with other Christians. And so why not get a head start on learning to be a good neighbor? Um, because you already are. You already exist with a ton of different others. Um, but I also think there's a values and something that I've found in my work with students. Uh, and it's, again, like interfaith encounters often lead to a deeper interrogation of your own commitments. And that's where a place like Wheaton is a, a gift, is because you are part of a community um, that can really help you hone in on, actually, what do I believe? What do I think about this? They think this. What do I think? It's that discerning piece again. So I think it's a both and, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, Jennifer. Yeah. Amen. Oh, yeah. I, uh, it's so easy to forget about the Holy Spirit. Um, and <laughs> so, um, like, I was actually really excited when Williams, like, had this robust account of the Spirit. I was like, yes, he didn't forget it. Um, and I think that's right on. Like, we, and that's why I ended, like, trust the rhyme and reason. Like, God's got it. Like, if God, if we believe that God created everything, is sustaining our every waking moment, then God's going to work it out. And our job is to just be faithful to be human. I mean, I think a lot of people ask, like, why is this Catholic university so religiously diverse? And I think 
part of it might have to do with that. Like there's some recognition that like, oh, like Catholic universities have some kind of sense of values and we have a sense of value. So we like that, you know? Um, and, and I think there is some kind of shared vocabulary, you know, among my students of trying to figure out life together. But again, that really does even include my non-religious students. Like they're just as invested as becoming the best people they can be, um, even if they aren't going to use the vocabulary of faith to do it. Then we have to go. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, again, I work for a Catholic university. Every student's required to go to a mass at the beginning of the year. Um, and, and it's been really interesting to work with my Catholic coworkers, you know, to, and I can't even share in that mass, right? Because I'm Protestant. Um, and kind of just have this like come to Jesus moment of like, look y'all, at the end of the day, Mass is exclusive, you know, like you can make it as welcoming as you want. Um, but what we do is we give students resources, we give them reflection questions, um, like what resonances do you have in your tradition where meals are important, or we give them a way to interact with it, but not denying that this is an exclusive practice. Um, and if I ever were to bring a student here, that's exactly what I'd do with them. I'd, I'd want to give them the resources to help think through how does this relate to my own life, um, because there's a, there's a sanctity in wanting to preserve what we do. So anyway, that's it. But thank you all. <laughs>